Section 5 of The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Michelle MacFarland, Ballarat, Australia. The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories by E. F. Benson. General Stories. Chapter 2 The Orialists. In spite of the unaccountable absence of a cabinet minister who should have sat between our hostess, Mrs. Withers, and Miss Agnes Lockett, I felt that this luncheon party must be considered as perhaps the most epoch-making that had, up to the present date, been enticed beneath that insatiably hospitable roof. Never had the comet-like orbit of our entertainer ascended quite so high towards the zenith. With the negligible exception of myself, for whose presence there I shall soon amply account, there was not one among us, man, woman, or child, for that prodigy on the fiddle, Dicky Sebastian, in his tight colossal sailor suit was of the company, whose name was not thrillingly familiar to the great percentage of the readers of those columns in the daily press, which inform us who was in the park on Sunday, chatting with friends, or at the first night of the new play, looking lovely. Briefly, to tell the number and brightness of these stars, there was a much beribboned general from Salonica, a girl just engaged to the heir of one of our most respectable dukedoms, a repatriated prisoner from Ruleben, a medium possessed of devastating insight, a prominent actress from a review, a lion hunter, not our amiable hostess, but a swarthy taciturnity from East Africa, and the adorable Agnes Lockett, lately created a dame in the order of the British Empire in connection with secret service. She had just been demobilised, and, as she freely admitted, four years of conundrums and traps had undermined the frankness of her disposition. Schemes, plans, intrigues had become, for the moment, a second nature to her, and she was not happy unless she was laying a trap for somebody else, or suspecting, quite erroneously, that somebody was laying a trap for her. She had also become a smooth conversational liar. These things had not, it may be mentioned, affected her charm and her beauty. Finally, there was myself, who had no claim to distinction of any kind, beyond such as is inherent in living next door to Mrs. Withers, and being honoured with the friendship of Agnes Lockett. I had been asked by telephone just at luncheon time as I was in the act of sitting down to a tough and mournful omelette alone, and I naturally felt quite certain that I had been bidden to take the place of some guest, not the cabinet minister whom she still expected, who had disappointed Mrs. Withers at the last moment. This was confirmed by the fact that she told me in her clearest telephone voice that I had promised to come today, which I knew was not the case, and that she was merely reminding me. Obviously, then, she was in urgent need of somebody, for it was not her custom to remind all her expected guests at the very moment when they were due at her house, and my inclusion in this resplendent galaxy was certainly due to the convenient fact that, as I lived next door, I should not keep the rest of her party waiting. It is, I hope, unnecessary to add that, with the unfortunate exception of myself, everyone present appeared in the informing pages of who's who so that his work and recreations were known to the reading public, 
and would afford a good start to the medium in case we had a seance afterwards. As the currents of conversation set this way and that, I was occasionally marooned in a backwater and could hear what Mrs Withers was saying to Agnes Lockett. The latter had been to the new play last night, and an allusion to it produced from our hostess a flood of typical monologue delivered in the judicial voice for which she was famous. She was a big, lean woman who radiated a stinging vitality that paralysed the timid, and as she spoke, her eyes patrolled the distinguished table with the utmost satisfaction and controlled the service. "'Yes, Roland Somerville is marvellous in the part,' she said, "'and I told him he had never done a finer piece of work. "'But I thought Margaret had not quite grasped his conception of it. "'I went round, of course, to see her afterwards, "'and as she asked me what I thought, I told her just that.' "'At this moment the telephone bell rang in the room adjoining, "'and Mrs Withers, though continuing to analyse the play "'with her accustomed acumen, it had produced precisely the same effect on her as on the author of the critique in the Daily Herald, was a little distrait in manner till her parlour-maid communicated the message. Ah, that accounts for Hugh Chapel's absence, who was to have sat between us, she said to Agnes. He was sent for to the palace at a quarter past one and is lunching there, and I ordered golden plovers especially for him. Hugh was at Priscilla's last night, looking very tired, I thought. You know him, of course, Miss Lockett. Agnes was looking a little dazed. Not yet, she said. You asked me here to meet him. Mrs Withers made a gesture of impatience at herself. As a matter of fact, she had, in asking Agnes Lockett, told her that Mr Chapel was coming, and in asking him, had told him that Miss Lockett was coming, thus hoping to kill two lions with one lunch. "'Of course! How stupid of me!' she said. "'Let us instantly arrange another day when you can both be here. "'Ah, do come to a little party I have on Thursday night. "'You will find Lord Marrable here too. "'He only got back from America ten days ago. "'Poor Jack! He had a terrible voyage, and he is such a bad sailor.' "'A look of slight astonishment came over Agnes's face.' and remembering that she and Lord Marrable were old and intimate friends, I wondered whether she was surprised at this odd allusion to poor Jack, for he was known to his intimate circle as John. Personally, I had had the felicity of making him and my hostess known to each other only a few days ago, and I too wondered a little at the speedy ripening of the acquaintanceship. I did not wonder much, for I knew Mrs. Withers's friendly disposition and her tendency to allude to everybody by his Christian name. But at the moment a too rash act of swallowing on the part of Dicky Sebastian, who sat next to me, made it my duty towards my neighbour to thump him on his fat back for fear that we should never hear his violin again, and my attention was distracted. When the fishbone in question had been safely deposited on the edge of his plate, the telephone had again been ringing, and Mrs. Withers was retailing the reason for the absence of somebody called Humphrey, whose place I conjectured that I was now occupying. During the discussion of the golden plovers provided for the absent Mr. Chapel, I became aware that Agnes Lockett was being drenched and bewildered with the flood of celebrated names that was playing on her as if from some fire hose. Actors, authors, politicians, social stars, 
soldiers and sailors were deluging her, and, without exception, they had all been here, by their Christian names, last week, or at any rate were coming next week. Without exception, too, each of them had told Mrs. Withers, in confidence, what she now repeated to Agnes, knowing that it would go no farther. George had assured her of this. Arthur had hinted that. Jenny had thought this probable. Morty had scouted the idea altogether. But however much they had disagreed, it was certain that they would all be here on Thursday evening, and Agnes could talk to them herself. As I listened and looked, I saw that a species of desperation was seizing Agnes. She was finding the recital absolutely intolerable. Then an idea seemed to strike her, and looking round to catch a friendly eye, she caught mine and spoke to me across the table. "'Have you seen Robert Oriole lately?' she asked in her delicious husky voice that was so unlike the canary tone of Mrs. Withers. But as she asked me this, she gave me a peremptory affirmative nod of which I could not miss the significance. I had never heard of Robert Oriole before, but I was certain that Agnes, for some reason of her own, insisted that I did know him, and accordingly I answered in that sense. "'We went to a play together last night,' I said. At that precise moment, without a pang or a cry, Robert Oriole was born. The new name, of course, instantly challenged Mrs. Withers's whole attention, as Agnes had designed that it should. Devoted as she was to old and celebrated names, new names that she had never heard of demanded the keenest of inquiries. "'Robert Oriole,' she said. "'Who can it have been who was speaking of Robert Oriole the other day?' Agnes's brilliant smile shot out and sheathed itself again. "'Ah, who isn't talking about Robert Oriole?' she said. Much as Mrs. Withers liked appearing to know, she liked really knowing better, and surrendered. "'Was it Maudie?' she said. "'I can't remember.' Once against a fresh current of conversation clung to my hearing, but rather uneasily, I could catch little enthusiastic phrases in what Agnes was saying to our hostess, and wondered if I should be called upon to invent anything more about this unknown personage. I could not, a moment ago, have done otherwise than I had done, for Agnes unmistakably commanded me to say that I either had or had not seen Robert Oriole lately. I was bound, at any rate, to convey in my answer that I knew him, and so it made no particular difference as to whether I had seen him lately or not, and I had said that we had been to the play together because I had to say something, and it was clearly much more suitable at Mrs. Withers's table to have done that sort of thing. For all that I knew for certain, there might be such a person, but I strongly suspected that there was something back of Robert Oriole, as our American friends say. What that was I could not conjecture, but I felt that I was acting under Agnes's direction in some secret service. My apprehensions increased as I heard his name figuring largely in her conversation, and were confirmed when, as she passed me on her way out, she said in a secret service undertone, not looking my way as she spoke, I shall come back with you almost immediately to your house, where we must have a serious conversation. For the present, just keep your head, and remember that you know Robert intimately. Half an hour later, accordingly, we were seated together in my house. 
The wall between mine and Mrs. Withers's drawing-room was not very thick, and the bountiful roulades of Dickie Sebastian's violin were plainly audible. Agnes, with a flushed face, like a child who had been triumphantly mischievous, was sipping barley-water, for she felt feverish with imagination. "'So that's that,' she said decisively, after a lurid sketch of what had happened. "'And it's no use regretting it. We must save all our nervous force to go through with it.' "'But what made you invent Robert Oriole at all?' I asked. "'And then why have brought me in?' "'I couldn't help inventing him. "'It may have been demoniacal possession, "'or more likely it was a defensive measure against my going mad, "'which I undoubtedly should have done "'if Mrs. Withers had told me any more at all "'of what the great ones of the earth said to her in confidence. "'I should either have gone mad or taken up a handful of those soft chocolates and rubbed her face with them. So I was obliged to know some glorious creature whom she didn't know. Obliged. She knew all the real ones, so I had to invent one. Does she really call them by their Christian names? At a distance, said I. Then she ought to do it right. She called John Marable Jack, when nobody else had ever called him anything but John. And she spoke of you as Frank, whereas nobody had ever called you anything but Francis. In a week from now she will be calling my darling Robert Oriole Bob. But he really is Robbie. She put down her empty glass. That has calmed me, she said, and so now we will get to business. I must repeat all that I told Mrs. Withers about Robbie. He is thirty-one and is the most marvellous airman. He has yellow hair and blue eyes, and is like the Hermes at Olympia. She thought I meant all's court. It is perfectly clear to Mrs. Withers's ferreting instincts that I am in love with him. About that you had better say, if she asks you, that we are merely great friends. He flew over to France about a week ago, piloting three cabinet ministers. They won't fly with any other pilot. That won't do, said I. I went to the play with him last night. I am not so stupid as to have forgotten that. He came back yesterday and left for Paris again this morning, carrying a new cipher to the embassy. He writes the most wonderful poems, which he composes as he is flying. She will ask for them at Vickers, said I. Agnes thought intently for a moment. She may ask for them at Vickers, she said, but she won't get them because they are not published. They are typewritten on vellum, and he lets his friends see them. Perhaps we had better write one or two. What is vellum? My head whirled. But what is it all about? I cried. I don't mean his poems, but himself. Why are you making all this up? She looked at me as at a rather stupid child. Now, try to understand, she said. I invented him originally to save myself from going mad, and we are making up delicious details about him to save ourselves from detection. We have both of us said that we know Robbie Oriole, and so we must know something about him. The more picturesque, the better. We must be able, I have already done so and I'm telling you about it, to describe his appearance, his career, his tastes. If you told somebody you knew me and couldn't say anything definite about me, people would think that you didn't know me at all. It's the same with Robert Oriole. 
we must be able to tell Mrs. Withers about him and say the same thing. You would be quite despicable if, having said you knew a glorious creature like Robbie, it appeared as if you didn't. What a delicious name, too. It came to me in a flash, and I felt as if I had known him all my life. Fancy poor Mrs. Withers not knowing Robert Oriole. How bitter for her. Ah, that's your real reason, said I. Now you are serious. Not at all. That is the humorous side of it. It is to save ourselves that we have got to build up this solid, splendid presentment of our friend, and that is why I am telling you so carefully all I have said about him to Mrs. Withers. When it comes to your turn, as it undoubtedly will, to describe him further, you must always telephone to me at once what you have said. Where had we got to? Oh yes, his poems. Haven't you got some joyous little lyrics in your desk which are his? Or better, some vague, morbid little wailings? Yes, that shall be the other side of Robbie, known only to his most intimate friends. To the world which worships him, he is all sunshine and splendour. But to us, his dear friends, there is another side. His grandmother was a Russian, you must remember. I think I had better write the poems. Somehow, incredibly to myself, the fascination of creating and building up and furnishing out a wonderful young man like this, who had no existence whatever, began to gain on me. Also, as Agnes had said, there was the instinct of self-preservation to spur on the imaginative faculty. There was also the pleasure of going one better than Mrs. Withers, and of pretending to know intimately somebody whom nobody could possibly know. He is an orphan, I said. May he be an American? That would make him easier to get rid of than if he was English. She shook her head. Orphan, yes, she said. American, no. I can't bear American poetry, and I'm sure I couldn't write it. But his parents lived in India. They are both dead, and he hasn't got any relations whatever, which makes him so romantic and accounts for that salt-soul loneliness in his poems. We will give him a home, just a little remote house by the sea in Cornwall, near St Ives. The Atlantic rolls in on the beach in front of his grey-walled garden. His poems have the beat and rhythm of the sea. I sprang from my chair. Never, never, I cried. Mrs Withers goes to Sir Ives every summer. Hmm, we will give him his home then in the Lake District, said Agnes thoughtfully. There is no beat and rhythm of the sea in his poems, but the eternal melancholy of lakes and mountains. He must have somewhere pretty far off to go when he is demobilised, as he will be almost immediately. His constant presence in London would lead to detection. Then why demobilise him? I asked. He can always be in France when it is convenient to us. She was quite firm about this. It would never do, she said. Mrs. Withers might make inquiries about him from some general in the Flying Corps. Indeed, I am almost sorry he was an airman at all, but that can't be helped now. He can go to India to see his parents' graves, said I, if we want to get him out of the country for a long period. Yes, but he can't always be doing that. No one would make constant visits to India to see graves, however beloved were their occupants. Besides, it takes so long to go to India and back. 
he had much better be in his lovely home in the lakes and pay flying visits to london here to-day and gone to-morrow just giving us a new poem on vellum that will be much more fun oh a most important point he must have some other friends besides us who are worthy of knowing him john marrable will be a nice friend for him john will appreciate him i will tell a few trustworthy people about robbie and you must do the same we will call ourselves the Oriolists. Mrs. Withers, of course, telephoned both to Agnes and to me to bring Robert Oriole to her party on Thursday evening. But there were so many new and resplendent friends there that she did not, except for a passing moment, regret the absence of that poetic airman who was up in Westmoreland. We had each of us provided him with two or three nice friends who were in sympathy with him, but for some days after that he made no particular developments, and I began to think that, having served his purpose in protecting Agnes from insanity at Mrs. Withers's luncheon party, she was losing interest in her benefactor. Then suddenly he burst out in renewed glory, for it came to Agnes's ears that in allusion to that same luncheon party Mrs. Withers had said to a mutual friend that dear Aggie had told her the most wonderful things about the secret service which she could not possibly repeat. This was sufficient to put new life and vigour into Robert Oriole. Agnes, who had never been called Aggie before, dragged me from the music room at an evening party, where Dickie Sebastian was playing all that had ever been written for the violin, and recounted this outrage on the stairs. "'I have seen that woman three times,' she said, "'once when I was introduced to her,' once when I lunched with her on the day Robbie was born, and once when I didn't bring him to her Thursday evening, and now I am Aggie, and told her all about the secret service. I was almost inclined to let Robbie fade away again, but now she shall see. Heavens, there she is. Dickie Sebastian had ceased for the moment, and a few straggling couples emerged stealthily from the music room the first of whom was Mrs. Withers and Lord Marrable. Mrs. Withers would have been content, so it struck me, to kiss her hand to Agnes and pass on, for she had just been alluding to Aggie again. But since he came to a stop, she was obliged to wait also. He had already heard that he was a jack, and his broad, good-humoured face was a chink with merriment as he spoke to my companion. "'Hello, Aggie,' he said been talking secret service on the stairs. Mr. Goodenough and I, said Agnes carefully, were waiting for Robbie. Do go and find him and bring him here by his golden hair. What, is Robbie here? he asked, thereby conveying to me that he was an Oriolist. I didn't see him. If Robbie is in a room, it's not easy to miss him. I didn't even know he was in town. "'Of course he is,' said Agnes. "'Fancy not knowing if Robbie is in town. "'You might as well not know if the sun is shining,' said I fervently. "'Quite. "'Lord Marrable, do go back and see if he isn't there. "'He and Mr. Goodenough and I are going back to his flat, "'and he is going to read to us. And "'Then he is going to play the piano, "'and then I suppose it will be time for breakfast "'before we have talked enough.' Mrs. Withers rose like a great salmon fresh from the sea and rushed at this wonderful lure. I never heard anything so improper, she said. You and, and Mr. Goodenough and Robert Oriole? My dear Miss Lockett, 
Who is chaperoning you? Agnes's face dimpled into the most delicious smile. Ah, oh, we don't want any chaperone in the sunlight, she said, as John shouldered his way back into the music room. Then let me drop you all at his flat, said Mrs. Weathers. I have my motor here, and I'm going home now. I'm sure it is not out of the my way. Agnes nudged me with her elbow to indicate that I had to answer this. Robbie's car is here. Many thanks, I said. It's waiting for us. I saw it when I came in. And he plays the piano too? asked Mrs. Withers. Agnes laughed. I believe you know him all the time, she said, and mean to repeat to him all the nice things that we say about him. You know him intimately, I believe, but if you tell me that he has already sent you those three sonnets he wrote as he flew to Cologne the other day, which he promised to read to us tonight, I don't think I could bear it. Mr. Goodenough and I were promised the first hearing of them, and I believe he has sent them to you already. Indeed he hasn't, said Mrs. Withers in a social agony. I really don't know Mr. Oriole, though I am dying to. I hoped you would have brought him to my little party last Thursday. Thursday, Thursday, said Agnes. Yes, I remember. Robbie was up in the lakes. Such a pity. He would have loved it. Just the sort of party he adores. Mrs. Withers's brow, that Greek brow with a fillet of crimson velvet across it, from which depended a splendid pearl, grew slightly corrugated and made the pearl tremble. She prided herself on knowing all her engagements for a week ahead, but the recollection of them was difficult even to her. "'Sunday at lunch, then,' she said. "'Will you both come and bring Mr. Oriole? Tell him how divine it would be if he would read us the Cologne sonnets.' "'I'll tell Robbie,' said Agnes. "'But as for your chance of finding him disengaged, I couldn't promise anything. "'How his friends grab him when he appears!' I, ah, uh, there's John, I mean Lord Marrable. Well, he simply isn't here. Agnes turned to me. Ah, uh, now I remember, she said. He told me that if he couldn't get here by half past ten, he wouldn't come at all, but would just send the car for us. What time is it now? Eleven, said I. Oh, come quick then, said she. We've missed half an hour already. Lord Marrable turned to Mrs. Withers. Well, you and I must console ourselves with supper, he said, as Robbie hasn't asked us. It was all very well for Agnes to say that we would go quickly, but Mrs. Withers just clung. But wouldn't he let me come too, she said. Mayn't I drop you at his door, Miss Lockett? And I would wait while you asked him if I might come in. Agnes's face dimpled again. My dear, if it were possible, she said, but with Robbie, however intimately you know him, you can't quite do that. You agree with me, Lord Marrable, I know. But if, if he gives me a copy of the Cologne sonnets, or lets me make one, you may guess to whom I will show it, unless he absolutely forbids me to show it to anybody. How tiresome it is that you don't know him. Mrs. Withers's pearl trembled again. Or if lunch on Sunday won't suit Mr. Oriole, she said, I have got a few people to dinner on Tuesday and Wednesday, and if you would bring him then, I should be more than charmed. She remembered that her hospitable table was crammed on Wednesday, 
but there were two or three people who did not matter, and she could easily tell them that she expected them not that Wednesday but the next. Or if he would ring me up and suggest any time, she added. Agnes laughed again. Too kind of you, she said, and how rude of me to laugh. I laughed at the idea of Robbie telephoning. He can't bear any modern invention. But he is an airman, isn't he? asked Mrs. Withers. Never have I admired the quickness and felicity of the female mind more than at that critical moment, which would have caused any mere man to stumble and bungle and leave an unconvincing impression. There was not even the perceptible pause before Agnes answered. Ah, but Robbie says that flying is the effort to recapture bird life of a million years ago, she said. Birds and angels fly. It is not a modern discovery, but a celestial and ancient secret now being learned by us in our clumsy way. Robbie is lyrical about flying. But what bird or angel ever telephoned? Come, Mr. Goodenough, let us find that car. I forget how he reconciles himself to motoring, I said. I did not want to put Agnes in a fix, but only to delight my soul with another instance of feminine alacrity. He doesn't, said she brightly. But then you have got to get to places quickly, and you can't fly through the streets of London yet. He sounds too marvellous, said Mrs. Withers ecstatically. Sunday, Tuesday or Wednesday then, any of them. The discerning reader will easily have perceived by this time that both John Marrable and I were but wax in the inventive hands of Agnes and flowed into the shapes that her swift fingers ordained for us. Occasionally we suggested little curves and decorations of our own, which she might or might not permit. But we had no independent will in the matter of Robert Oriole. She was the architect who built this splendid temple to an imaginary deity in whose honour Mrs Withers, his deluded worshipper, swung unregarded senses of asparagus and salmon. At the most, we were the cognizant choir and the organ. During the next weeks, which included the Sunday, Tuesday and Wednesday, on which Mrs Withers's hospitality hungered for Robbie, the number of Oriolists greatly increased. And this secret society became positively Masonic in clandestine fervour and fidelity, I could see at a glance, without grips of any kind, whether some friend or acquaintance who inquired after Robbie was a mason or not, for there was a gleeful solemnity about the initiated Oriolist which the profane crowd lacked. There were many who now spoke of him, for Mrs Withers, in her frenzied efforts to capture him and show him at her house, asked everyone she met if he knew Robbie, and her large circle of uninitiated guests and acquaintances grew almost as excited about him as she. Those who knew, the initiates to whom these mysteries had been unveiled, answered casually enough when they were applied to by Mrs Withers, but with that gleeful solemnity which revealed them to each other. One morning Robbie would have been stunting over Richmond, or had lunched at the Ritz, or had been swimming in the Serpentine before breakfast, dropping in unexpectedly to entrance Agnes with the Brahms handle variations, or flying back to the lakes in the afternoon, and the telephone messages that passed between the houses of the initiated were cryptic and yet comprehended utterances. 
then on an ever memorable day two typewritten copies of the cologne sonnets circulated among the elect and were secretly read in corners to the less fortunate on another day robbie must have called on me when i was out for i found his card with his address blaythwaite fell upon it when i returned he was not able to go to mrs withers's house either on sunday tuesday or wednesday but on Friday, when she returned from a concert at which royalty was present, she found a similar card with Agnes's on her table. And all the account her parlour-maid could give was that Miss Lockett had come to the door with another gentleman, whom she had not seen before, for Lord Marrable had not previously come to the house. Mrs. Withers, trembling with chagrin, for she had not been presented to royalty at the concert, and had missed so much more by not stopping at home, telephoned to Agnes at once, only to learn that Robbie had that moment left by air for the continent. It is better to describe than to let the reader imagine for himself the state into which Mrs. Withers was brought during these days, because the imagination, from excess of excited fancy, would go wildly astray. For she did not grow one atom distort or deranged. She became, on the contrary, more concentrated and business-like than ever. She telephoned daily to Agnes and me to know whether Robbie, she always spoke of him now as Robbie, had got back from the continent and told us quite firmly that she would put off any other engagement in order to receive him at her house or meet him at any other house. But pending that consummation, she remained as regular and as resonant as a cuckoo clock and struck her social hours with the same fluty regularity. She did not lose her appetite, or take to cocaine or opium smoking, or drown herself in the Thames, as imagination might expect, but kept her head, went up several times in an aeroplane in order to get used to it in case Robbie on his return suggested an expedition, and temporarily stole my copy of the Cologne sonnets. I am not quite sure about this, but I missed them one afternoon, when she had been having tea with me, and found next day that in my absence she had called and gone into my sitting-room to write a note to me. On my return, I found the note prominently displayed, and the cologne sonnets concealed in the blotting-book, which I had unsuccessfully searched the evening before. The case is not proved against her, but certainly after that she could quote from the cologne sonnets. Then one morning, even while I was wondering what made Agnes keep Robbie so long on the continent, I was rung up by her maid and asked to go round to her at once. In answer to a further inquiry, It's about Mr. Oriole, sir. Full of some nameless apprehension, I started instantly on that bright June morning, feeling sure that at the least Robbie was the victim of some catastrophe. I was even prepared to learn that Robbie was dead, though I could not form the slightest conjecture as to what had led to this sudden demise. Or was Robbie engaged to be married, and had we to arrange about an elusive female of mysterious charm and antecedents? Well, it was not that. But it was even worse, for Agnes was engaged to John Marrable, who, with the selfishness of his sex, insisted that Robbie should die. He was with her and put his case. Agnes really seemed more taken up with Robbie than she was with him, and he demanded her undivided affection. For her part, she wanted to leave Robbie on the continent for future emergencies and promised not to think about him. 
but John objected to that. His head, he told us with a glance at her, was too full of other things, and he could not trust himself not to give the whole affair away by some inadvertence of happiness and pride. That glance settled it. Agnes took a half sheet of paper and wrote on it for a few minutes in silence. I will send it to the principal morning papers, she said, and John shall pay for it. Listen, will this do? Oriol, on the 17th instant, very suddenly, at Mannheim, Robert, only son of the late William and Margaret Oriol of Karachi, India, aged 31. Deeply lamented. No flowers. We will grieve not, only find strength in what remains behind. That appeared next day, and I do not suppose that anybody lamented him more deeply than Mrs. Withers. She sent Agnes and me charming little notes of condolence, and quoted from one of the Cologne sonnets, and asked if those touching lines in the notice of his death were by him. A week or two later I sat next to Mrs. Withers at dinner, and Mr. Chapel was on her other side. "'Of course you knew, dear Robbie Oriole, Mr. Chapel," she said. "'What a loss to poetry!' Are not those Cologne sonnets the finest in your opinion since Keats? I was privileged to have a copy of them. You agree with me, do you not, Mr. Goodenough? Do you remember that marvellous one beginning, The clouds weep westwards under the scurrilous sky? I hugged myself over not asking who had given her that privilege, and sadly assented. She proceeded to talk to both of us, as her manner was at the dinner-table, with an intuition wrong in itself, but so excruciatingly right in general direction that it made me catch my breath. "'Yes, those sonnets,' she said. "'How amazingly feminine they are, both in their tenderness and bitterness. "'Or perhaps all I mean is that women will always appreciate them more than men. "'When I say them over to myself, as I so often do,' I seem to see Robbie reading them to Aggie Lockett. Certainly, I thought when she first spoke to me about Robbie, that she was absolutely devoted to him. Indeed, it gave me a little shock when I saw today that she was to marry Jack Marrable. This was almost incredibly wonderful, for Mr. Chapel was one of our most fervent Oriolists. It was as full of points as a hedgehog. I could not count them all. Then he turned on me the usual look of gleeful solemnity, and I knew we both wondered who would be the first to tell Aggie. Poor Robbie, he said. I never knew anybody the least like him. He will be a sacred memory to us, will he not? Mrs. Withers shook her head regretfully, smiling. The last time he called, she said, I was not at home. Of course, if he had only told me he was coming, I would have thrown over any engagement to be there. But, as you may not know, he would never use a telephone. It will always give me a little heartache to think that I was not there the last time. Mr. Chapel let his eyes wander admirably before he caught mine again. It is only human to feel that, he observed in the best style. End of section 5